assistant CIA director told me there will always be a CIA. You could never abolish it because then who would presidents have to blame? I think 9-11 was a case where the CIA was unfairly blamed. In my mind, it was a policy failure, not an intelligence failure. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by co-hosts Indy and Cameron. You're listening to the third episode of our new series, The Foreign Policy Toolbox, where we'll unravel the mysteries of the most important institutions, concepts, and policies that decision makers actually use to implement foreign policy. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Central Intelligence Agency. For some, the Central Intelligence Agency remains shrouded in secrecy. Others recall the CIA's Cold War-era attempts at regime changes. Today, we will discuss the basics of what the CIA is in order to understand what its true goals and missions are. What has the CIA done throughout its history? What does it mean for the CIA director to be the nation's honest broker of information? And how do the CIA and president communicate and coordinate, especially when their relationship is fraught? Chris Whipple is an award-winning writer, documentary filmmaker, and speaker, writing for Newsweek, Vanity Fair, Politico, The Daily Beast, and many other publications. Chris Whipple's career in journalism has spanned 40 years, and as a correspondent for Life magazine, he covered apartheid in South Africa, revolution in the Philippines, and conflicts in El Salvador, Lebanon, and Northern Ireland. Most recently, he's the author of The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Pleasure to be with you. To start us off, could you give us a short overview of the CIA? What are its overreaching goals and what does the CIA do to achieve them? Well, you know, it's hard to overstate the importance of the Central Intelligence Agency. It's, it's of course, one of uh, 17 intelligence agencies in the so-called uh, IC community. But in my mind, it's it's far and away the most important. The, the CIA director is the person we depend on to prevent another Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and even a lethal pandemic, although the Center for Disease Control, of course, has the primary responsibility there. It's interesting because when you, when you talk about the CIA's mission, uh, it's a subject of debate and has been for some time. There are those who believe that the central mission of the CIA should be intelligence gathering. Uh, but there's also a other roles have, have become more and more important uh, in recent years, particularly the paramilitary function of the CIA. In fact, there's a really a kind of a battle for the soul of the CIA that's been, been going on since 9-11 uh, between those who believe in pure intelligence gathering and others who, who feel that the paramilitary operation is um, is is also a critical function. So it's a fascinating subject. And I guess other than in using the intelligence to inform, inform strategy, are there other ways that the CIA fits or yeah fits into foreign policy making? The principal function of the CIA, I mean, by by far its most important mission, is to provide honest intelligence about enemy capabilities and threats to national security for the president and his national security team. And a great deal of the effort of the CIA goes into producing the the so-called President's Daily Brief, or PDB, which has a very small circulation, as you know. Uh, It's primarily created for the president, but also read by 
his National Security Council and some cabinet uh, ministers. And it's, um, you know, the role of the CIA director is to be the honest broker of intelligence, to make sure that the president knows um, what his options are and what the consequences may be of uh, history-making decisions. So now that you've explained a little bit more about what the CIA does, can you explain to our listeners how the CIA is organized and who has decision-making authority when it comes to CIA operations? Well, the thing that's um, the thing about the, the CIA director is that he or she commands an army of analysts, covert operatives, paramil- paramilitary warriors, and even lethal drones. Uh, but all of that is for naught if the CIA director does not have the ear of the president. You have to have a seat at the table uh, to be effective as CIA director. And to tell you, I mean, the organization is essentially, without getting too much into the weeds here, essentially the CIA is divided into two camps. It's, it's analysts and operatives. And it, in fact, it used to be, they were, they're really completely different worlds. In fact, they used to even eat in separate cafeterias and, and never mingled. That's no longer the case, but it is still true that the primary, although there are other, lots of other areas of, 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 of specialization, the primary divide is between the analysts and the operatives. At, at one point, um, you know, the, direct, the so-called directorate of operations went by many different names, but essentially covert operations have to be approved not only by the CIA director, but by the president and briefed to Congress, uh, the so-called Gang of Eight. So that's a difference that really began in the mid-70s when congressional oversight began. And so I think in the, you know, in the current, uh, current situation, you really have to, uh, covert operations have to be approved uh, by many different parties. So it's a very different world from the 1950s uh, when John Foster Dulles, the CIA director, could order covert operations all over the world, overthrow governments, and Congress was none the wiser. Uh, it's, a, it's a completely different world now. Great. So, so far, we've been hearing a couple references to the IC or the intelligence community. Could you explain to us what that means exactly? So the intelligence community consists of 17 different uh, intelligence services, of which the, the CIA and the, and the National Security Agency, or NSA, are by far the two, two most powerful and important. Uh, but, for example, the Pentagon has its own uh, intelligence service known as the DIA, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, and it's really the job of the Director of National Intelligence, or DNI, to coordinate all these agencies and to try to ensure that they're not stepping on one another's toes. Um, The CIA director um, nominally reports to the Director of National Intelligence, um, and that relationship, that hierarchy, has been complicated and not always the smoothest functioning uh, operation since since 9/11. It was created in 2005 as a result of 9/11, and um, 
I think that um, in the beginning, there was a real friction between the DNI and the CIA director. That's become less so um, in recent years. And I think um, John Brennan as CIA director and Jim Clapper as uh, director of national intelligence uh, had a very, uh, very productive and, and fairly smooth relationship, but it hasn't always been so. So between all these different intelligence agencies, especially the, the DNI and you know overlapping to a degree with the CIA, at least from an outsider's perspective and purpose, why does why do we need so many of them? Seventeen agencies of the intelligence community don't work a lot. Well, it's a good question, I mean, and and I think that there are a lot of people who would argue that it's it's much more complicated than it needs to be, but there they are. I mean, these agencies, uh, these services have been there for a long time, and the as I say, the creation of the Director of National Intelligence was an attempt to coordinate them uh, and make sure that they're not working at cross purposes. You know, back during uh, um, prior to uh, the Iraq War, um, there were allegations that uh, Dick Cheney and some of his allies, the vice president and some of the hardline hawks in the W administration were trying to create their own intelligence uh, or, or have the DIA uh, provide, provide them with intelligence justifying the invasion whereas the CIA wasn't being as, as gung-ho as Cheney might have liked. So <clears throat> I think as a result, now the DNI is supposed to coordinate those agencies. And if you talk to, if you talk to John Brennan and, and Jim Clapper, they'll tell you that, they, that Brennan in particular will say that he couldn't possibly have done his job running the CIA without Clapper uh, having his back and coordinating the other agencies. Mr. Whipple, we'd like to pivot a little bit into the history of the CIA. And so to start us off, what strategic imperatives demanded or necessitated the creation of the CIA in 1947? And did the Second World War play a role in the creation of the agency? Yeah, the Second World War played a major role. In fact, the, the major strategic uh, imperative, as you put it, was Harry Truman uh, discovering that he knew nothing about the creation of the atomic bomb when he suddenly became president upon the death of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, Harry Truman was blindsided. He had no idea that there was even such a thing as the Manhattan Project, uh, the, that, that secretive, uh, that enormous secretive project uh, to create the first atomic bomb. And I think it was really Truman's um, surprise um, when he discovered this that led him to feel that future presidents should be far more prepared than he was. And so, for example, the um, I thought of this when during this whole you know fraught period of the of of Joe Biden's non-transition transition when he wasn't getting intelligence briefings. I remembered from my research that Harry Truman had authorized intelligence briefings for Dwight Eisenhower and his Democratic opponent, uh, Adlai Stevenson, uh, in the summer of 1952. So this goes, this goes all the way back to Harry Truman. And I think the primary impetus for creating the CIA was, again, Truman's personal experience of feeling that 
he was not well prepared and that the nation needed to be prepared, better prepared, and it needed an intelligence service to, to prevent another Pearl Harbor. So with one of the main purposes of the CIA being to brief the president and sort of prepare him, him or her for whatever needs to be addressed in terms of intelligence and national security, what happens if the president gives the CIA director an order that is illegal? And what is that director's responsibility then? Can you give us an example of any times this happened in history? Yeah, I can. And it's a, it's a fascinating um, example because um, I got to know Richard Helms's wife, Cynthia, uh, his widow, Cynthia, before she died in the summer of 2019, spent some time with her. And she told me some fascinating untold stories about Dick Helms' experience as CIA director. She said, you know, they were all asked to do things they shouldn't have done. Helms was no exception. He was asked by LBJ to do illegal things, including uh, launching a domestic surveillance operation called MH Chaos, uh, which was a violation of the CIA's charter because it was domestic, not foreign. It was a violation of the law because the CIA was uh, carrying out surveillance without warrants. Helms went along with it uh, because I think he felt he had no choice. LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, was hell-bent on proving that domestic anti-war protesters were being controlled by foreign communist powers. There was no truth to it. Uh, MH Chaos came up empty-handed, but Helms went along with it. In my view, years later, Helms vindicated himself. He was redeemed uh, in the eyes of history when he stood up to Richard Nixon, when Nixon ordered him illegally to obstruct the FBI's investigation into the Watergate scandal. Well, on that occasion, Helms drew the line. He refused to do it and thereby upheld the uh, rule of law and arguably saved the CIA. So that was a, a pretty vivid example of Richard Helms being told to break the law by a, by a president and refusing to go along with it. I think when you look at 50 years of CIA history, that far from being a so-called rogue elephant, which is how the late Senator Frank Church once described the CIA, it's really been a check on rogue presidents. Uh, and it was certainly true of Helms and Nixon. Uh, it was true in a, in a smaller way um, when Donald Trump uh, tried to essentially carry, a, carry out a mafia-style shakedown of the president of Ukraine for dirt on his political rival. Well, it turned out to be a, uh, an anonymous CIA whistleblower who brought that to public attention. And so in terms of these extra-legal requests, has there ever been any consequence or retribution for them, or has it sort of just been accepted? Well, in, in Richard Helms's case, um, he was certainly uh, never, never prosecuted or held to account for some of the illegal operations like MH Chaos that the CIA carried out. Uh, for Helms, the consequence of standing up to Nixon was he lost his job. He was fired shortly thereafter when uh, Richard Nixon summoned him to Camp David and um, and fired him and, and made him ambassador to Iran. Um, 
So th there have been consequences in some cases. I mean, certainly um, Helms himself, of course, um, wound up making a plea, no contest to uh, uh, to a charge of, of perjury uh, in when he testified before Congress about the CIA's intervention in Chile uh, during the um, during Salvador Allende's uh, uh, election. So there, there's certainly been consequences uh, from time to time uh, when the when the CIA has overstepped its authority, but very rarely has anyone gone to jail. There are a few examples of this that are you know no more obvious than during the Cold War era, era excuse me when the CIA was able to successfully coordinate numerous regime changes in the western hemisphere and the middle east in order to install governments friendlier to american interests you cited uh, you cited chile under salvador allende could you further elaborate upon examples such as that one and tell us a little bit about the effects of this type of intervention and why has it been controversial well, the most controversial period was probably during the uh, tenure of John Foster Dulles, uh, who was a, a very powerful CIA director under um, Dwight Eisenhower in the 50s. And those were the days when there was no real congressional oversight. Um, all of that's changed, which I can get to in a minute. But most infamously, the, the CIA overthrew or, or helped to overthrow uh, the, the Prime Minister Mossadegh uh, in uh, Iran in 1953, uh, thereby solidifying the, the Shah's uh, uh, hold on that uh, on, on power there. And then later uh, in, in Guatemala, the CIA was certainly uh, very involved in, in, in driving uh, the Guatemalan dictator out. Um, in many cases, um, these covert operations had completely unintended effects and they were disastrous in the long run. Certainly this, the, its involvement, the CIA's involvement in the overthrow of Mossadegh in, in Iran poisoned relations between that country and the U.S. that, that continue to this day. I mean, that was really the beginning of a, a long, you know, half a century of, of enmity between the two countries. Um, and certainly in Guatemala and in, 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 South, in South America, uh, in other places, we have, we have sown the seeds, the CIA did, of, of repressive regimes that tortured and murdered opponents. So um, there's certainly no lack of examples of, of operations that were considered, quote unquote, successful that were in in fact, disastrous in the long run. I wanted to focus us a little bit on 9-11 because the events leading up to 9-11 were considered by by a lot, to, by many, to be an intelligence failure. Could you talk about the CIA's role in 9-11 intelligence and gathering intelligence on terrorism in general? And how has 9-11 affected the CIA's approach to counterterrorism? Well, a lot of, uh, lot of good questions uh, there um, that I'm not sure I can cover. Uh, but there's a, there's a famous lament at CIA that, that there are only, in this town, they like to say, there are only policy successes and intelligence failures. And what, and what that lament reflects is the fact that the CIA is often blamed um, 
In fact, one, um, <laughs> one, one CIA director told me there will always be a CIA. You could never abolish it because then who would presidents have to blame when things go wrong? I think 9-11 was a case where the CIA was unfairly blamed. In my mind, it was a policy failure, not an intelligence failure. And I tell the story in The Spy Masters uh, in great detail about the July 10 meeting when the CIA director, George Tenet, and his principal lieutenants went to the White House, met with Condi Rice, the then national security advisor under George W. Bush, and in no uncertain terms warned her that an Al-Qaeda attack was coming, it was imminent, it would be disastrous, it would kill thousands of Americans. Uh, they couldn't say exactly where it would happen, but it was coming. And the and frankly, the George W. Bush's White House uh, didn't react. Um, they, they failed to, uh, to act on those warnings. Um, there are a lot of people who believe that if a so-called principles meeting, a meeting of the department heads, including CIA, FBI, and others had been held, that the, the presence of the two CIA hijackers uh, on US soil for months in advance that was later revealed um, would have become obvious and, and they would have had to act on it, but, uh, but they didn't. So I tell that story in the Spy Masters of how, in my view, um, this was a failure of the Bush White House. Uh, and part of it was their attitude. They were trapped in a, in a kind of an old mindset that, um, that terrorists were so-called Euro lefties who uh, like to drink champagne at night and blow stuff up during the day. They couldn't believe that a serious threat could be mounted from caves in Afghanistan uh, by these Mujahideen. So <clears throat> in any event, that's my view on 9-11, on and I tell the story in The Spy Masters. As for the, the effects of 9-11, it, it, it was a tremendous effect. It, it, it galvanized the CIA into becoming um, not just an intelligence gathering agency, but, but really a paramilitary organization. Um, it, it now, as, as, as we all know, operates lethal drones, even though the CIA doesn't acknowledge that publicly. Um, and um, it's become a, a real killing machine in addition to becoming an intelligence gathering organization. So 9-11 had a profound effect on the CIA. Right. So going off of that and whether it's the fault of the, the Bush administration or the CIA, there has been a robust debate surrounding the ethical implications of tactics surrounding the war on terror that the CIA has used, most notably around black sites. So could you explain a little bit about what a black site is, what happens at these black sites, and why they're controversial? Yeah, one of the great stories that I tell in, in The Spy Masters involves um, Gina Haspel, who is the current CIA director, the first woman to rise to the pinnacle of the intelligence world. Um, she cut her teeth as a covert operative in Africa, but ultimately wound up as the base chief at an infamous so-called CIA black site in Thailand. Um, the black sites were, uh, essentially they were, they were CIA bases that were simply never acknowledged. Their existence was never talked about. These were places where after 9-11, the CIA interrogated Al-Qaeda suspects, suspected terrorists uh, at the 
black site where Gina Haspel was the base chief, uh, Abu Zubaydah uh, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, two of the principal um, al-Qaeda terrorists were were waterboarded and, and subjected to the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. All of this, of course, became a real bone of contention when uh, Gina Haspel was up for her confirmation hearing to CIA director uh, years later for Donald Trump uh, and um, became very uh, contentious, as you know. So the, um, the, the, the black sites and the so-called RDI program, Rendition, Detention and Interrogation program, was, um, was run by uh, Jose Rodriguez, who was um, head of the uh, of, uh, Counterterrorism Center at the CIA post 9-11. Uh, it was tremendously controversial, of course, not only the black sites, but the interrogation techniques. And, um, and I confronted George Tenet and asked him point blank about all of this. He denies uh, to this day vociferously that the techniques uh, should be defined as torture. Uh, he <clears throat> emphasizes that post 9-11, in the context of the times when they were afraid that a second wave attack was imminent and that the U.S. was, you know, might, might be subjected to multiple 9-11s, they felt they needed information and they needed it immediately. And that all of these techniques were approved by the president, by the attorney general, uh, by the Office of Legal Counsel, and briefed to Congress. And, um, and that's true. Um, it's, it's true that those, those techniques, whatever, whatever anyone may think of them now, uh, that they were not something that the CIA simply uh, cooked up on its own. So we've been talking a lot about the shortcomings and failures of the CIA, and there are evidently a lot to talk about there. But what does it look like when the CIA succeeds? Well, um, I, I do think that, first of all, that, um, as I said before, that the CIA is often blamed for, um, for mistakes of, of policymakers. It's a, it's a convenient scapegoat a lot of the time. Um, and I do think that... Um, the CIA has had some some amazing success stories. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is about the incredible Cold War operation when the CIA uh, raised a, a sunken Soviet submarine from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and recovered um, missile codes and, and the bodies of Soviet sailors, um, sub submariners, um, in, a, in an incredible intelligence coup. Um, the, the covert operation that resulted in the Afghan Mujahideen driving the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan in the early uh, to mid-1980s, it was a, a pretty incredible success story. Um, although you could argue that, um, that, that the Mujahideen sowed the seeds of 9-11, ultimately, so there's always there's always blowback um, on these operations. And I tell the story in the book about the greatest manhunt in CIA history. Um, the most wanted terrorist um, during the 1980s and 90s and um, was, was not 
Osama bin Laden, but in fact, a terrorist named Imad Magnia, who was the operations chief of Hezbollah. And the CIA ultimately, with Mossad in a joint covert operation, uh, tracked him down and killed him in 2008 in Damascus. It's a hair-raising story that I tell in the book, uh, along with a story that's never been reported before of how the CIA nearly kidnapped uh, Imad Magnia in Beirut uh, 10 years earlier. So the CIA certainly had successes, and, I, and, and maybe the most successful of all it would be during the Cuban Missile Crisis when John McCone, who was John F. Kennedy's CIA director at the time, uh, was at his side during the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, arguably without him, uh, there's a good chance the, the U.S. might have invaded the, the, Cuba. Um, we now know that Cuba had tactical nuclear weapons, uh, and that could have ended very badly indeed without McCone, uh, with access to U-2 photographs and and even purloined um, guides to the uh, Soviet missiles. Great. So we kind of see this sort of evolution over the years between the CIA and the U.S. government. Um, how has this relationship manifested since its founding, and how much has it changed? Well, it's a whole new world in, in this respect, and that is uh, congressional oversight. Prior to the mid-'70s, um, and as I alluded to before during the, uh, during the Eisenhower years, the, the CIA really was able to operate all over the world without much in the way of constraints. Uh, that world changed overnight in the 70s with congressional oversight as a result of uh, a number of scandals that came to light, including uh, attempted assassinations of Castro and others. And and uh, some of the other operations we talked about. So <clears throat> I think probably very few people realize that today, if, if the president wants to authorize a covert operation, uh, it has to be briefed to Congress, to the so-called, to the so-called Gang of Eight. Uh, and so the world has changed completely when it comes to oversight and and what the CIA can do, and I think I think that's a good thing. I think it's really essential an essential thing. In your book and earlier in our conversation, you said that the CIA director is the nation's honest broker of information um, during a crisis. My question is: we we understand that being an honest broker entails keeping the president updated on intelligence, but what does it mean when the president? And when there's a rift between the president and the CIA, as we have seen um, between President Trump and his CIA director, Gina Haspel, and has the current CIA director succeeded in fulfilling this role during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, the first thing to point out is that <clears throat> Donald Trump is not the first president to come into office convinced that the CIA was a deep state full of enemies, liberals who wanted to... Uh, uh, who were hell-bent on taking him down. Richard Nixon thought the same thing about the CIA uh, when he came into office. He thought that he blamed the CIA for his loss to John Kennedy in the 1960 presidential election. He thought the CIA was feeding information to Kennedy that turned out to be false. Um, so that's the first thing to point out. But 
you know, it's always been, as I said, the, the relationship between the president and the CIA director is everything. On the one hand, you have to tell the president hard truths. And at, on the other, you have to have his ear. And it's a very delicate balancing act. And for Helms, it was certainly difficult with LBJ. Um, I think Helms was uh, a, a great admirer of LBJ and his domestic policies. And he was totally exasperated by LBJ's Vietnam War and was and had a hard time telling him uh, hard truths that LBJ didn't want to accept. Um, so, but but Helms took very very seriously the principle that the CIA director should never put his thumb on the scale, should never advocate for policy or for action. He should present the options, present the intelligence as honestly as possible. Uh, lay out the possible consequences of actions and then step out of the room and let the president and his national security team uh, actually debate policy. That's been a sort of ideal for the CIA director, it's, it's, but it's, it's, it's been hard for many directors to live up to. Uh, there were people who thought that George, uh, George Tennant uh, became the, the CIA director under George W. Bush was too eager to please George W. Bush, um, and that that led to the faulty uh, estimate on weapons of mass destruction. I don't necessarily buy that, but that's been one theory of the case. And so I think Gina Haspel has had, first of all, it's, it's mission impossible to act as CIA director under, under Donald Trump for a whole host of reasons. I mean, he he brought, as I said before, this contempt uh, for the intelligence community into office. Uh, <clears throat> he doesn't read the president's daily brief. Uh, he's incurious. He thinks he knows everything worth knowing. And he doesn't believe anything the CIA tells him. Uh, so that's, that's a recipe for uh, dysfunction. And frankly, during January and February of 2020, when the first warnings were being made about a coronavirus coming out of uh, China, not only was the president ignoring those warnings in his president's daily brief, but the whole briefing process had almost broken down. I mean, he was at best having a briefing once a week. So I think we are suffering the catastrophic consequences of a president who ignored warnings about the coronavirus in January and February in his PDB, and who, of course, as we now know, uh, lied about the severity of the pandemic, um, as we know from the recordings with Bob Woodward. So it's, it's hard to overstate the, the consequences having a president who is essentially unbriefable. So given the challenges and, and the, the tumult of the past, what role do you think the CIA will play in U.S. foreign policy in the future? Do you think that there are any reforms that the CIA still needs to make in order to adapt to this future and avoid these failures and these difficulties that they've experienced, especially over the past four years? Well, first of all, I think that we already have a new director of national intelligence, um, Avril Haines, um, in place. And that's a first step because the director of national intelligence, uh, current DNI, uh, has really been a disgrace. Uh, he's he's been a 
a partisan sycophant uh, instead of an honest broker of intelligence to Donald Trump. So that's step number one. <clears throat> We're almost certainly going to have a new CIA director. It's interesting that we don't have an announcement yet, but I think we will pretty soon. And the very first thing that CIA director will be focused on is restoring the morale of the agency um, and making sure that he or she um, can end the politicization of intelligence that that took place under under Donald Trump. Um, and so I do think that the intelligence community has been under siege with this president uh, who, who, as I said before, regarded them as an enemy, as a, as a deep state. I think that we probably need to strengthen um, the independence of the inspectors general uh, in the CIA and across the community because um, Donald Trump really attacked them and uh, made it very difficult for them to do their jobs. I think whistleblower statutes should be looked at and strengthened. There was real, there was, there was real danger for a while that, that the CIA whistleblower in the case of Ukraine was um, not only getting death threats, uh, but Trump was uh, uh, accusing that person of treason. So I think there are reforms that probably can be undertaken, but the first order of business is getting a CIA director who will truly be an honest broker of intelligence. Mr. Whipple, thank you so much for taking us through the definition, history, and recent occurrences of the CIA, as well as future reforms um, for the CIA as well. My pleasure. Say hello to my friend, John McLaughlin. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and to the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.